So if you don't want carrot cake to start with, you're not going to want this. Uh, and it, uh, you have to like carrot cake. It's you have to like carrot cake. Okay, everybody, welcome back to uh, the Uncommon Solutions podcast. I'm David Schechter. This is uh, going to be our first roundtable conversation. We haven't done this before, and we've got some uh, some of the uh, the deep bench of uh, the Schechter team here to help us work through the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, which everyone's been talking about. Woo! Woo! It was signed into law on December 27th of last year, and it contained a subtle revision to the IRS code 7702 that could have substantial impact for the life insurance industry. Uh, so really the, what the law does is it lowers a minimum interest rate that's used to determine whether combination savings and death benefit policies are too much like investments in order for them to qualify for tax advantages that are granted by, in, that you can use inside insurance. So this is a pretty specific conversation, but I think we have the right audience. We got the right people to talk about it. We're going to really think about you, the advisor, and you might be wondering how does this you know, affect your business? What are the pitfalls for your high net worth clients? What are some of the opportunities that are out there for you? And joining us now, of course, is Mark Schechter, the Senior Managing Partner at Schechter Wealth. Mark? Hello, David. Good to see you. Jordan Smith, VP of Advanced Design. Hi, David. And Kevin Giganti, who's the Insurance Design Manager, is the new guy. You haven't been on the podcast before, so we all want to welcome you. Give a little, little round of applause. Great. Kevin. Thanks, Happy to be here. Good to see you. Kevin, let's start with you. Tell us what was the change that happened and why is it significant? Right. This is an important change that happened in the life insurance industry, and it's significant because it adjusts the minimum underlying interest rate assumption used to determine the tax incidence of the cash surrender value within the policy. The change that they made is that they decreased the factor of 4% to 2%, nearly cutting it in half. What this means from a fundamental perspective is that there is now a lower requirement for a life insurance policy on the gap between the cash surrender value and the death benefit. And this is known as net amount of risk. So for example, if you have a term policy, there's no cash value component, million dollars is the death benefit. So the net amount at risk for the carrier is gonna be a million dollars. On the other hand, with permanent insurance, if we have cash surrender value in the policy, and let's say we have the same million dollar death benefit, but the client has $100,000 in cash value, the $900,000 is the net amount at risk to the life insurance carrier. Jordan, what Kevin's telling us, you know, is it significant? I think it is. And, you know, maybe it's helpful to understand where 7702 came from in the first place. And this was put into the tax code because you had people structuring life insurance policies uh, for tax purposes, where they might buy a million dollars of life insurance, but for that they would pay a, a premium of $990,000. So there was really only 10,000 of pure insurance as part of that contract, but they were doing this to take advantage of the tax-free nature of life insurance. And Congress said, no, we're not gonna allow that anymore. And we're going to set a minimum amount of insurance, pure insurance, that you have to buy within the contract in order for it to be considered life insurance 
for income tax purposes in order to get that tax-free growth and tax-free benefit. But David, when they put that 990,000 in on a million dollars life insurance, that 990,000 is, is being invested within the policy. Right. And all of that growth would occur tax-free. So people were motivated to say, how much more money can I plow into this insurance policy so it can grow tax-free? My charges are only based on that million dollars of life insurance. And actually, the more I put in, the less amount at risk the insurance company has, the lower the charges are. So there's this great investment opportunity to capitalize on the tax-free nature. And that's when uh, Section 7702 was created. And they said, hey, wait a minute. If you're buying this much insurance and you're this age, you can only put in this much premium. If you put in more than that, we're not going to give you the benefit of that tax-free growth. And we're going to tax you when you take it out instead of so allowing some, you to take so it So something out. has happened over time here that the Congress said, well, this has gotten out of hand again. We need to, we need to act. Well, the formula was based on the assumption of what the cash in your policy ought to be expected to grow at. And with interest rates being historically low or near historic lows for the last 12 years, they got to the point where the assumptions were no longer accurate. And the statute and the formula under the statute was assuming that cash in the policy was gonna grow at a higher rate of return than whole life carriers in particular were able to produce which was causing a misalignment of the whole illustration for the policy. And they were, the illustrations were essentially saying that we're gonna calculate how much death benefit you have to buy based on this return, but the policy is actually only able to earn this return. And so they decided now it had gotten so far out of line that the whole life carriers asked Congress to make this change because they could no longer design policies that were gonna perform in accordance with the rules. So if, for example, when we were talking about that million dollar death benefit and Kevin mentioned, you know, maybe uh, there, well, Jordan was mentioning pre-7702, maybe you could put in 990,000. Right. IRS comes in and says, uh-uh, you can only put in 100,000. All right. And you can put in the hundred and that can grow tax free. Now that hundred was based on that old 4%. I see. Now the IRS is saying we can put in 200. I don't know what the exact math is. 250, you know, something like that. It depends on the age. It's actually helping the client. It's helping the industry. I'm super excited about it because it's enhancing our product for the, for the designs that are done for the people who wanted to stuff money into the policy, into this tax free environment, we can stuff more dollars into that same policy. Okay, I want, I, want to hear, I want to hear about that, Mark. I just had one follow-up question for Kevin that I, I know you've written a little bit about this, that it affects whole life uh, more than it would affect universal life. Is that, is that an accurate statement? That is an accurate statement. And part of that reason is that whole life typically uses a particular definition of life insurance that required a higher corridor limit. And additionally, the guaranteed rate was based off of the underlying interest assumption, which in this case was 4%. So if the whole life carrier had to produce a guaranteed return of 4%, it became much more challenging 
in the ultra low interest rate environment, as opposed to the 1980s when this law was included in the IRC code. Okay, so Mark, you're seeing an opportunity here for the customer uh, in this law, in the change of the law. Can you describe what that looks like to you? Yeah, so first, David, you know, from some of our other discussions, there's a world of people that buy life insurance for the death benefit. And they, they need to have it to pay estate taxes, to put food on the table or whatever they're, to buy out a business partner, whatever the reason is that they're buying it, they're buying it for needing the need of liquidity at an individual's death. Then there's a world of people who are buying life insurance as an investment asset to own that asset, whether it's stocks in a VUL or you know bonds in a whole life or kind of this collared S&P in the, in the indexed universal life. They're buying it for an investment objective. And so when they're buying it for an investment objective, they're usually comparing it to other investment alternatives. Right. And now this opportunity for those who are buying it as an investment just got significantly better because they can stuff more money into that policy. And it's still, if it's a million dollar death benefit, instead of stuffing in that hundred, they can stuff in 200. They're basically uh, the mortality drag on the doll- each dollar that goes in was cut in half, right? So we're getting $2 in for every dollar we used to get in before. We're still paying the same amount for mortality charges, kind of approximately. So it becomes a better investment option by probably, you know, 40 basis points or something right now is what our analysis is showing us, 30, 40 basis points. And then when we use leverage, you know, that could end up being, you know, one and a half, two percent. I see Jordan shaking his head in agreement over there. Absolutely. No, it's a great opportunity. And even though this was put in place in order to solve a problem that whole life carriers were having, I think it provides tremendous opportunity, not only for whole life, but for universal life and uh, variable, indexed universal life and variable policies, which didn't need the change, but are going to benefit from it. So uh, in terms of, um, well, let's talk about it from the customer perspective, and let's talk about it from the advisor perspective. You've got your end, you know, high net worth individuals buying an insurance policy. what kind of education do they need? What's the story there to say, hey, this this is this is a this is something you should look at now. It wasn't even available last year. So I'll just jump in and say, um, for again, depending on which the which the buyer's objective, if they were buying it for death benefit, you know, I need ten million dollars to buy out my partner if he dies, then this isn't really relevant because we're not stuffing as much money as we can into this policy anyways, we're putting in as little as we can into this policy. So for that person, there's really no discussion and we continue to operate as we had pre the section 7702 changes. For this investor client, it's all about how technical they wanna get or not. Some of my clients don't wanna hear anything about it and they're just gonna, trust that we're doing the best thing for them. And some of them dig in and are analytical and they want to know every little nuance of the policy and the costs and the, the credits and the tax and everything. So it's an education process for those folks. Kevin, what do you see as the, as, um, and, and maybe it's the same or maybe you can add to that, but what do you see as, as a benef- end user benefit here? 
Uh, I think Mark hit it right on the head in saying that, you know, there are many purposes for life insurance. You know, we've got specified death benefits um, and those will be much less affected than the accumulation solves. As far as accumulation solves go, we now have more options and flexibility to design a product for each individual as opposed to being limited to one or two accumulation strategies before. Can you elaborate on that, Kev? By using the guideline premium test, it required, it allowed a lower corridor than existed on the CVAT design, which was typically for death benefit. And the caveat of that is being able to overfund the policy with the lower death benefit, reduced expenses, and allowed the accumulation, um, you know, to grow significantly better than the death benefit focus sale on a CVAT design. Mark, have I lost you? No, I got you. <laughs> Jordan, it sounds like perhaps you are, are you, have you sort of touched on this in design yet? Has this come up? Well, for designs that are premised on what kind of return we can get under the policy, it certainly helps. Uh, because we're, as Mark and Kevin had said, we should be getting an additional 30, 40 basis points of, of return on premiums to cash growth, uh, which is really going to help uh, when we're looking at what are our chances of reaching whatever success we're looking at. So let's talk about the advisor who is, you know, hopefully still with us, still listening. Um, and, and you know, I, I think what is unique about Schechter and this advisor relationship is that you bring a lot of expertise that they may not have where in their own operation and they can benefit from, from, from that. So um, from my perspective, you know, not being an insurance guy, this, there, there's, it's fairly complicated in terms of uh, a lot of things you've talked about, we, we haven't talked about before. Um, so how, let's, I want to start with you, Jordan. How, how do you think advisors should um, take in this information, look at their book of business, look at the people they're working with and say, is this, is this going to be another opportunity for somebody that I'm working with? So what this is going to do is going to make whatever proposals you would otherwise have offered to those clients and prospects look that much better. I don't know that it's going to open up a whole new range of people who might not otherwise have, have been interested in the first place, but for people who are interested and it really comes down to for them, I'm gonna compare this life insurance policy and the performance that I'm going to expect on this to my next best alternative. You know, I don't have to buy life insurance to drive whatever transaction I'm, I'm looking at. I could buy stocks, I could buy real estate, I could buy something else. And how well is this life insurance expected to perform and how does that compare? It's going to make the life insurance look better because the charges are gonna be less, my cash within the policy is gonna grow faster than it would have before. Um, so maybe if you had people who were kind of on the fence, they were interested, but they weren't convinced at the performance based on the performance we were able to show them before, well, now we're gonna be able to show them a product that's gonna perform just a little bit better. 
And maybe that's going to make the difference. And for those who were already interested, well, now they're going to get even more benefit from it. I'll tell you, I think an exciting opportunity for uh, the advisor community is to, you know, we are often, as we manage policies and we're reviewing their insurance portfolios, we are constantly assessing the marketplace and looking to see which carriers are offering, you know, more attractive contracts and, um, typically, we got to wait, you know, six or seven years or something like that to look at a policy and try to improve upon it, unless it was really designed poorly. Mm-hmm. We can improve upon it, you know, immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a great opportunity now to say, you know what, the policies we are looking to improve upon, we are no longer at a level playing field. We were always at a level playing field, but now the change in law gives us an advantage over the policies written anytime pre-7702. I see. So provided that that insured is still in good health, they bought a policy, you know, two, five, 10 years ago, depending on the surrender charges in that policy, if they're still in good health uh, and they can move to this environment, it could be opportunistic to- Here's here's a mark that is an opportunity to go back, review, what, what your clients have say, okay, this change, what, the same thing you did before can now be significantly more valuable. Yeah. If, they were, if they were a buyer before for investment in max growth and they can only put a hundred grand into that million dollar death benefit, you know, we're gonna show them an environment where they can put 200 into that million dollar death benefit. The charges are the same and they now have 200 growing tax-free instead of a hundred growing tax-free. Mm-hmm. And that results in a better return. So Jordan, on the back end of that, if I'm an advisor, what what's the level of complexity, work, whatever it takes for us to get back to that point where we can make that evaluation? This is better than it was before for your client. Well, we should take a look at it and run a new illustration, see what the new product with the new underlying assumptions uh, is likely to produce compared to the old one. Um, you were, we were already, we already had an environment where doing an exchange of an old policy from the, the cash in an old policy into a new policy let us take advantage of um, a slightly lower corridor than you would have had to, uh, you would have had to have in the policy when you buy a new one. Um, Kevin, have we looked at how the new 7702 assumptions impact 1035 exchanges and whether we get an even further benefit on that? Uh, we have not yet identified any 1035 exchange solves, uh, but when we are looking at these cases, some of the things that we're looking for are the difference in charges, the difference in performance and cash value growth, um, and a litany of other items to help provide further light onto that, uh, which you know, we will be diving into on a 1035 basis as soon as more carriers are able to release updates. And I want to follow up on that, Kevin, uh, on the carrier side. I'm again, reading your research here. Um, This seems like it's new enough that I think you're sort of saying carriers are waiting to see what the other carriers are doing. Uh, Can you describe the environment? Exactly. So carriers have been slow to make these changes and roll them out. No one really wanted to be the first to the market. They wanted to see you know, what everyone else was doing first and how the, uh, the market would react. Um, a few carriers have released products and the up on, based upon the updated interest rates. Um, but at this time, the great majority of carriers have yet to announce or 
update their, you know, illustration software to reflect the updated interest rate. So how do you deal with that, Mark, in terms of talking to your clients if the if this if the product may not it's really kind of not there yet? Great question. And um, I don't know if we have an exact answer for it because each uh, client is different. Um, and I think we'll get different clients and maybe different advisors who feel differently. But uh, I think that there is um, enough of an opportunity to bring into consideration, you know, if we know a client is thinking about buying this particular program now, perhaps we should wait to see how everybody else is coming along. Now, this started in, you know, January, right, with the thought that we knew it was coming, but we didn't really know how this was going to play out. You know, now perhaps in, you know, you know, March, April, we're starting to see some of the industry's reaction, but it's still a very small percentage of the industry. And we don't know how everybody's, how it's all going to play out, but it may be depending on um, how a client feels about it, how much risk there is to waiting when we're doing a non-finance program and we wait, we've got the risk of health. It's all of a sudden the person's healthy now. We can do it today. It's it's not the 7702 product, right. but we know we can get a preferred rating. And if we wait six months, I don't know what's going to happen. We have on some occasions bought a term policy uh, that's convertible with the understanding that we know we can protect the health and convert it to permanent at a later date. Um, but then again, there's other nuances. What are you doing with the money in the meantime? Is it sitting in cash making nothing? Could you put it into here and get the program started? Um, and then in the finance strategies, uh, we're running the risk of um, not grabbing up today's low interest rates. Right. We can lock in 10-year rates at super low uh, you know, environment. And are we risking that if we wait? I wanted to ask Jordan about the premium finance aspect of this Um yeah, that, that could that could change on a daily basis, I suppose, and then change the calculus, if, you know, if it's worth redoing what a thing you've already done. Yeah, for someone who's well along in the process, um, you know, I can just say that I personally would probably lean toward just moving forward and, and closing with the existing product. In fact, I'm actually doing that. So you say you would, you are doing that. <laughs> I, I am doing that. I've got my own premium finance uh arrangement that is supposed to close next week, and I'm not going to delay it in uh, anticipation of a, of a different product uh, coming out. But it's all, as Mark said, it's, it's individual client specific, and you got to look at what their uh, tolerance is for the various risks of, of waiting versus, uh, versus closing it now. I don't think there's any one right answer that fits everyone. Kevin, do you see these do you have a sense of whether we'll see products soon? I think in the meantime, we're going to see some pricing updates, but I would expect by the end of the year, we should see some new products filed. End of the year. So Mark, from a customer you know, and advisor relationship, how do you handle, okay, there's something new out there. You'd be my first customer. You'd be my first client that I've run through this, or you'd be my second client. As opposed to, I've got these people who've been in these products for 10 years and here's how they've benefited. And you got these great stories to tell. Is there any concern about being the first one in as a client? No, not at all. It's it's the same exact product. It's just a, a nuance of the mechanism. You know, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but if you were, you know, going to go to this restaurant, you know, and they, uh, you know, 
they have their carrot cake or something and they eat the carrot cake. I think there's a, a little bit, you know, the way they're creating the frosting a little bit different. We think it's a little bit better and, but it's still carrot cake. So if you don't want carrot cake to start with, you're not going to want this. Uh, and it, you have to uh, like carrot cake. It's you have a, to like carrot cake. Uh, Kevin, any other um, aspects of this that you think would be worth talking about? It seems like um, uh, may, maybe inadvertently it's created a, a major opportunity. Uh, in, in changing one thing, it created an opportunity somewhere else, didn't it? Right. I think that the biggest impact of this change is going to be the whole life products, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, right now, these products are somewhat disadvantaged as the policies uh, have a higher propensity to become a mech when they're heavier funded for a shorter period of time. And a because mech modified that, endowment contract. Correct. Look at me, huh? I know, a regular everyday insurance. <laughs> Someone's been taking notes. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Hala, I, I would suspect that we may see some seven pay products come out on the whole life side. Uh, which typically the lowest pay is uh, around 10 years. Um, and, you know, that should make whole life a larger player, um, not only in the overfunded arena, but perhaps in the premium finance world as well. So, and last thought for advisors, anyone can jump in here. Um, we've now had a really good conversation about the changes in 7702. Um, and the opportunities don't seem to be quite available yet. So just monitor or, you know, how do they, how, what's the trigger for them to say, okay, let's, let's start. Talking. Some of the carriers have come out with their products, right? Symmetra has and Pack Life has. Kevin, are there others that we work with that have? I believe Nationwide has. So Nationwide has. So those are out there and they're available and, um, you know, all else being equal, I would, for, for an investment design, I would go with them over the, other non-7702, but I preface it with all else being equal. A lot of times that's not the case and certain carriers have, you know, better products in every different, uh, you know, age demographic and range and response to underwriting. So we try to balance it all uh, and find the best opportunity. Um, I do think that, um, you know, what we haven't touched on is compensation, which is an issue on the advisor side. Yeah, that's an important one. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, when we talk about this investment side, on the death benefit, again, if you're buying $10 million for a term insurance, you know, for a key man permanent policy, you know, it used to be that the fact that you can put more into the policy doesn't matter because you're only going to put in a, the lowest amount. But on the investment side, when I've been mentioning, we used to be able to put in 100 grand, we had to buy a million. Now we can stuff in 200 grand. A lot of our clients are not going to put in, if they were going to put in a hundred, instead of putting in 200, they're going to buy half a million of life insurance instead of a million. Yeah. Compensation for advisors is based on predominantly on the death benefit. So now they put in a hundred grand. And if you buy as little life insurance as you can, which is the appropriate way to design accumulation products, the advisor is going to make a lot less. So in my mind, and if you put it, if you, if you continue to buy the million for the hundred, you're not capitalizing on the benefits of section 7702 right now. So uh, in my mind, every time um, we design a strategy for the investor client, we're going to make less money. And in my mind, it's a good thing for our industry. Why is that? People, that's a, it's an unusual statement to make, right? It's a, it's 
the we're making the product better for the investor and we're going to get more i'm going to get more people wanting to put in 100 grand because i can de- deliver you know 4.8% instead of 4.4%. So you think like you're going to make the vo- there'll be more volume? Is yeah. You got more volume. So I'm going to make less on each widget and I'm going to sell a lot more widgets. And they're better it's a better product. So you're really confident that this product is significantly better that you will be able to sell more of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think we compete when we're competing on the safe side with bonds. Right. And bonds are doing two and a half percent or something. And we're at four, four point five. Yeah. Right. We first of all, we got the hurdles of life insurance to overcome with complexity and getting an exam. And I don't really believe it. And some people, you know, all the all the challenges we face there. But now if we can bump them up even more, uh, we're going to get more looks at it. Good. Well, guys, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Mark, Jordan, Kevin. Kevin, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Hope to have you back many times. Thank you. Hope to be back. You're welcome. Uh, And uh, it's a good conversation about 7702. I think it's actually quite interesting and does obviously create a lot of opportunity. I should say, don't forget that past performance is not indicative of future results. And our explanations here solely for illustration, not based on any actual returns. And you can check out the notes from this podcast episode to learn more about 7702 and all the things we've been talking about. Guys, thanks for your time. David, if you ever want to invite us to one of your family events or friends parties and talk about 7702, Kevin, Jordan, and I would be happy to come. It's actually, so we're taping on a Friday night. So if you guys can make it over for happy hour, I think you really light up the room. Great. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time. Bye.